0: Welcome, everybody. Today, we have a special guest who I've known for at least 10 years. Very interesting background. I've really enjoyed following his story over the years. He and I are about the same age. And one of the things that stands out amongst uh, our differences, among many, is that he also ran an agency who was able to exit uh, prior to, uh, well, I'll just say in his 30s. And... Um, it. He had excellent clients, excellent credentials, and uh, you know he's one of the best speakers I think I've ever heard. Um, he's been on Creative Live; it's been a fantastic journey to follow. And so, with that, I will just welcome Peter Corbett. What well, Peter welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Carl, it's so good to join you. It's really a pleasure, and thank you for the kind words.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and your your bio is excellent, I would be hard-pressed to do it justice. So I would rather just have you give me the most salient points for the audience.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'll give you the elevator on the bio. Um, I grew up as a little computer nerd. My maybe nine or 10 started programming, became a designer, went to business school, started uh, my own digital agency called iStrategy Labs back in 2007, uh, after getting laid off from an ad agency. I grew that company to about 100 employees, uh, I think about 13 or 14 million in revenue, and sold it to a publicly traded company called WPP, which many of you may be aware of. Um, I retired from that company almost exactly two years ago, and since then – have been working in service in a lot of ways. In the main way, I've been training in Zen hospice care. So I've been at the Brooklyn Hospital, um, working with the sick and dying in the ER and the ICU uh, prior to COVID um, and working with the family members of folks who have lost loved ones or who are sick in some way and and need uh, what we call spiritual care. So uh, that's
0: me in a nutshell. And it's fascinating to to hear the the present. Could you give a little bit about the why that took you from retirement at an early age, if you will, and a, and a successful exit to wanting to go to that life of service?
1: Well, I, I suppose I I retired officially at the ripe old age of thirty six, and um, you know I didn't grow up wealthy. Uh, I had a you know, a single mother with three kids. She did remarry uh, to a man who I consider my father. But um, if I wanted money for Nintendo games or candy, I had to figure out how to make it. So um, that built this sort of hustle in me. And that's, I guess, you know, the entrepreneurial journey or a key component of it. And once I, I quote unquote made it right, I, I guess I'd won like every award you can win in marketing. We won. Um, I think we won like 20 con lions, agency of the year twice by Ad Age, and once my bank account was full. It there was no desire to make money anymore. It seemed actually like a really silly thing to do. Like it was a waste of my time and energy. And it certainly comes from an incredible place of privilege to feel that way. And so I did a, a lot of soul searching, and realized the only thing worthwhile doing moving forward would be to alleviate suffering in some way, shape, or form. And because I had I had been raised Catholic, but um, left that religion because it just really wasn't serving me, uh, I became a Buddhist and I uh, began studying Zen specifically, realized that the way that I wanted to serve, or at least uh, the main way, would be to work with the sick and dying. Uh, that came out uh, or came about because I had um, about 20 of my friends had died between when I was 18 and 38. So I became pretty, I don't wanna say comfortable, but uh, familiar with death. And I felt that if I could become trained in working with people who are sick and working with people who are dying, that would be a gift that I could bring to basically everybody, because we're all gonna die. So I could be at the bedside with my parents when they die. I could show up more fully, uh, my wife, my friends, And really, it's been strangers. I mean, I've been by the bedside of uh, probably 150 people and now during COVID through Zoom. So, yeah, it came out of this desire to really serve, to alleviate suffering in some way uh, now that I didn't have to scratch that itch of making money.
0: It's fascinating. I think that a lot of people, and I'm sure you could identify with this pre-exit dream of what that feeling would be like and what their journey would take them if they would just, you know, become one of those folks who just dedicates their lives to Burning Man or something like that. And you know, camps amongst the Silicon Valley crowd. And I'm sure that that all went through your mind. And then you landed at this point of physical and uh, it sounds like one-to-one service, which has to be very interesting, or maybe even a little uncomfortable for an entrepreneur, because I know you're used to building systems.
1: Yeah, super uncomfortable, actually. Um, I credit my wife with uh, sort of poking me in the right way. Um, so right after retiring, you know, I was considering what, sh- what should I do? Should I start a nonprofit? Um, and any time something came up, I would think like, oh, well, that doesn't really scale. And my wife was like, it doesn't have to scale. And I didn't get that. Like I just, my intellectually, I didn't understand that because I was so conditioned to build systems, as you said, and, and organizations. I studied organization and management in business school. And, and what I came upon was that scale is irrelevant when you're literally helping a person right like we think oh i need to help a thousand people well guess what you can't have a deep high touch experience with a thousand people It just you, you can't maybe one one by one you could and so as i began working directly with people literally holding people's hands in the er when they come in stabbed or you know beaten in some way or having a heart attack or uh, or go up to the icu and are on ventilators like that is invaluable. There's no, scale is irrelevant. And, and so I repeatedly just went back and went into the next room in the ICU or went to the next bed in the ER, and it changed my conditioning. It changed me from someone who thought in terms of systems and scale to someone who truly valued helping one-on-one. And that has translated now into the pan- this time of pandemic where I can't be in the hospital. Um, the hospital won't allow, uh, spiritual caregivers to be there, uh, during this time. And so I literally, I delivered, I delivered groceries today to, you know, an old person who shouldn't be in the grocery store. And I delivered toys to a woman who couldn't afford toys for her, her autistic child. That's just two deliveries and, and it, and it's invaluable. Like neither of them have a car. Neither of them could be out and about. How do you measure that value? And it's, it's so, it's not something I'm going to put on LinkedIn. It's not yet another credential. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be getting a, an award for this. Um, and so removing the condition that everything has to be an achievement and everything has to be scale and everything has to build on itself it was so hard and it was so important for me personally. And, and I'll just say the last thing on this thread, it were, it required me breaking down that ego I had built up over the years. And ego is a complicated word. I don't mean it necessarily in a negative way. I just mean that character, that CEO character that I had cultivated and put on stage in the limelight to garner attention so that I could convert that attention to revenue for a company I was building. And once I broke that ego down, I could see a bit more clearly and in this sense it was that scale was irrelevant and helping people is much more important than making money.
0: Wow. Well, that's, that's powerful. And it's, it's, it's an emotional journey, right? And it's a human journey and it's great to, for an audience to hear that. I'm sure that some listeners might think, well, okay, well, that's, that's really great for Peter because he had the ability, I'm trying to avoid the word privilege, right? Because it's not, you, you, you earned it, you arrived, it's a transformation, but I think in the here and now, what would you tell somebody who's getting started and they're thinking, well, you know, I just, I've got to hustle, I'm gonna work myself as hard as I can and grind, 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 and is it about finding a balance? Is it, a, is it about something bigger, better, more? What do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, first let me address privilege. Um, God, I have almost all of them. You know, I was born in America. I was born white. I was born male. I was born with biology that gave me, you know, good brain. Um, the only privilege that I didn't have really, and there's probably a list of a hundred was I wasn't born into a wealthy family and I was born in a, you know, um, born to a biological father who is physically abusive and alcoholic. So I didn't have the perfect partridge family. That would have been a nice privilege to have. So I don't credit my success to my hustle and I don't credit it to um, meritocracy in any way, shape or form. I think meritocracy is an illusion. Um, I certainly worked incredibly hard, but I have black friends who I believe worked just as hard as me and certainly didn't get as far. And I don't, you know, who's to know how? these things work, but it's, it's not attributable to just my, my cunning intellect and ability and hard work. So to your question though, what would I say to somebody who thinks they have to work incredibly hard? Um, the most important thing is to think about like, really, what do you want and realize you're going to trade things for that. And I had, I don't think I had any idea because all I wanted was the stability that might come from financial, uh, well-being. Um, it was a foundational trauma in my life to, you know, be a child of divorce and not have, um, you know, much money growing up. And I felt that if I had money, then I could be safe and I was willing to give up almost everything for that. And I did, I mean, I, I could barely hold down a, a serious relationship. Um, for more than a couple months at a time when I was building iStrategy Labs, I gained, I think, 40 pounds. I'm, I think, 35 pounds lighter than when I retired from the company. Um, so it's amazing how, like, entrepreneurship will do that to you. Um, so I missed innumerable family holidays, um, innumerable friends' birthdays and life moments, them having children or otherwise. And Thankfully, I had good friends and family who just kind of knew I had to do what I had to do, which for me was working my face off. I worked every day. Um, I think the first two years, I probably worked an average of like 14 to 16 hours a day easily, uh, sometimes longer. I remember many, many weeks of having like four or five hours of sleep a night, and that's all I really needed. So it's really important to know what you're going to trade. And if you're willing to trade your health and your friendships and your mental well-being and your happiness for wealth like I did, go ahead. I don't suggest to do that because it's a brutal path and you're not necessarily guaranteed to make it through the other side, either with a big sack of gold or even alive. So it's really a matter of doing this consciously. Why are you doing it? Why are you gonna build that thing? Is it because you wanna make money? For me it was I did, that's what I wanted. And I also wanted fame, um, which is really a terrible thing to want. Uh, and I got it. I mean, we were covered in Wired and New York Times and as an NPR and all over, all the time. You know, I was personally on the cover of the business section of the Washington Post. Um, I was on TV. That's a few of those. I've, I've been on TV in fucking 15 countries. And looking back on it now, it's like, who cares? Like, it was all just feeding the business, which was meant to feed my bank account. And so I'm, um, I don't regret the path I chose, but I'd suggest to anybody going back to your question again, to really consider what you're going to have to trade for what you're trying to get.
0: Interesting. So I'm, I'm kind of itching to tell you something and get your reaction to this just because you mentioned coming from a child of divorce and, you know, having an abusive father. I there's this movie came out. I can't remember it, but it was all about the big ad agency executives. You, you may be familiar with this and they were talking about why they were successful and all this. And at a certain point, somebody said. Well, I had a really challenging relationship with one of my parents and uh, this whole thing, this whole meteoric rise is about the chasing the love that I would never get from that parent. And they all agreed. I couldn't believe it. I don't know how you of course. just, of course, that's, that's just a no brainer, right? I don't, that's amazing. Yeah,
1: we, you know, in this culture, we don't realize that we're traumatized, all of us, even if we had a wonderful upbringing, we're all traumatized in some way, shape or form as we're growing up and then that translates into our adult years. We just don't realize that. We don't think about it. And so if I had been a, a wiser young man, I might have sat myself down in my early twenties and been like, well, okay, what did you really go through and how is it affecting your decision making now? I was very conscious of my traumas and all that. And I had gone through therapy and thought I had worked through a lot of things, but I didn't really realize that I was subconsciously being driven by all of that lack.
0: Thank you for going through that. Mm -hmm. My father is like the nicest guy on planet Earth, you know, and uh, it's, you know, and I can't resent that, you know, Uh, of course, you know, but sometimes I wonder, hmm, if he wasn't so nice, would I, would I have pushed myself even harder and further in life? And it's just sort of a strange question to ponder.
1: My guess would be yes. Um, as long as you're not judging yourself about it, it's fine. I mean, when we're, <laughs> the horse that gets, gets whipped hardest runs fastest. I mean, it's just, it's simple. We're simple bio- biological machines. It's pretty straightforward. This is not, this is not complex stuff.
0: You're right. But isn't not complex. Simple can be hard, right?
1: No doubt. No doubt. And what I said about the, the horse that gets whipped hardest runs fastest is, is really important in the sense that um, we don't really realize that we are the ones doing the whipping. We are whipping ourselves the hardest. We treat ourselves typically. I I'm, maybe I'm, I don't mean to project on you know anyone listening here. I know this is true for me, and I know it's true for a number of people I've spoken with. You'd never treat anyone else the way that you treat yourself mentally, right? Uh, you're not good enough. You're never going to make that business work. Or you're so stupid. I can't believe it's not bigger or better. Like if you said that to someone else, they they wouldn't be your friend. You'd never see them again. So we're whipping ourselves with this negative monkey mind chatter. Monkey mind is a, a certain phrase in the mindfulness community. Um, so it's really key to be nice to yourself. And I'm, I'm rather nice to myself, actually. And my wife is – and I didn't used to be. My wife is like, I wish that I was as nice to myself as you are to yourself. And she'll hear me say, like, you know, I'll start some home DIY project. I'm like, you know, I really – I did such a great job building that like wooden stool. It was the first time I did it, I I had no idea. I was like a pretty good carpenter. She's like, who says that? Most people are like, oh, I'm horrible at this, I'm terrible, I can't believe it turned out so poorly. So I just feel fortunate now to be treating
0: myself better. Excellent, well, this is taking a different turn than I expected and I'm kind of loving it. So do you have any tips for that kind of, self-love or self-kindness?
1: Yeah, the first thing is to have a contemplative practice. Now, that's a phrase that not everyone is going to recognize. And the simple thing, a simple contemplative practice is meditation. Um, That's a simple example. Another might be like cycling or running. And, you know, when your mind clears out, um, you can start to like really notice what's going on. And when you notice what's going on, you'll notice that negative monkey mind. You'll notice that negative thought pattern. If you don't have it, great. What you'll notice is the positive one. And you'll go, oh, wow. Uh, Part of the reason why I'm so happy and successful and comfortable in my life is that I'm I'm already being so nice to myself. I already have that self-love. So for me, I I really started to develop my contemplative practice, which specifically is meditation. And I would notice this, this voice, this just negative horrible voice saying these things to me. And so one day I literally wrote a letter to it and I named that voice. I named it my name backwards, Peter backwards. And I said, dear Retep," And I said, you are. And I just like went after it and I said, you're not going to keep me down. You know, when you try to, when you say these things, it makes me feel depressed. I just want to lay on the couch. I don't want to do anything. You're trying to keep, you're trying to hold me back. And you know why you're trying to hold me back? Because uh, I think I said something like, because you can't do it, and I can, because you don't exist. You're just some little dumb voice, and I am here, and I can do this. And so I really turned it around. That was years ago, and, and my negative chatter is um, still there, still comes up, um, but it's really much quieter, which is so great.
0: Love it. Well, you seem very calm and at peace. Is that, is that one of many benefits? Is that... Sure. Yeah, it, um, I, I know you're not here to, you know, sell books on being a guru, but I think that kind of help is wonderful. I think now more than any is uh, just a great time for mindfulness and that kind of healing self-help.
1: It sure is. And I'm sure the, you know, Amazon book charts are just flowing with self-help books related to mindfulness. I can imagine they're they're replete with with those. And it's true. And it works. And I have been a meditator for 20 years, Uh, but only in the past two years, I think, because I've had the time, um, have I been much more intense about it. You know, sitting each morning. um, I think last year I did almost 30 full days in silent Zen meditation retreats. It's not easy. You know, seven days at a time of no reading, no writing, no watching any television, sitting six to eight hours a day meditating and like seeing it all, seeing what comes up and you just never know. And what's so relevant in this, this moment um, you know, June 2020 is my whiteness came up and I really, this was last year. I had never looked at it before. I had no idea. I didn't know how much I was benefiting from my white skin and the systems that support me because I have white skin. And that's so uh, – so it's difficult to look at, first of all. It's difficult to see. And then it's difficult to truly keep digging into and accepting and going further and further. And then when something like the most recent Black Lives Matter um, you know, movement sort of resurges back into the public sphere, I can then- – yeah, I can see very clearly my role in it. And when I hear a white person say like, oh, well, I'm not racist, I'm like, you don't understand your whiteness then.
0: Right. The systemic issue that yeah. is, has a long history that uh, is much greater than us. Well, obviously, I can identify with a lot of those privileges that you're describing mm-hmm. as well. Of course, the the white skin, almost translucent, right? Um, but that's... Yes, it's okay. So uh, this, this notion of mindfulness and meditation and Buddhism, I think is, is great. I'm curious if you still get the itch for the sort of disruptive innovation with, as a topic and subject that I probably would have, you would, I probably would be talking about if this were four years ago.
1: All the time. Um, So... I scratch that itch in a number of ways. And then I also endeavor to suppress that itch in a number of ways. So the scratching of that itch, um, you know, I probably advise a dozen companies um, formally and informally. Some, some I have equity in some I've invested in my own money and some, it's just, you know, sort of advisor shares and others. I just do it for the love Um, companies. I think are doing great stuff that I just, figure if they need some help, let me know. And it turns out that I know some things. So they pick my brain. Uh, So yeah, it feels really good to be useful to folks that are building something and for me not to have to be the CEO building it. Uh, The CEO job is is a wonderful job with a lot of privileges and it also totally sucks in so many ways. So I'm really glad, uh, especially during COVID, geez, to not be the CEO of a company. Um, And then- the suppressing part is interesting. So through my mindfulness practice, when this feeling of like, Oh, I should start another company comes up, which that comes up every other day, I don't know, every week. So ask yourself like, what the hell is that about? Cause I asked myself about it. I've just been so conditioned for so long that my self worth is tied to what I build or what my title might be, or, or what I'm working on. And then there's this like discomfort if the answer at the cocktail party is nothing. So for the past couple of years, I've been practicing this and I go to a party and someone would say like, oh, like, what are you working on? And i am said, nothing, nothing much. And just deadpan and try and see what their reaction is. And they'd be like, well, okay, well, um, well, what what are you like, what keeps you busy? Or what are you passionate about? And then I'd start talking about Zen hospice or something like that. And now we're really talking about something, right. Or at least talking about something that I'm actually interested in. So that's not to say that I won't start something. um, one day, I imagine that I, I probably will, but I've been trying to keep myself from doing it. Um, and I will say one of the reasons why is, um, I can't figure out what is worth doing for money because I have enough and uh, everything in our culture conditions me to believe that I don't have enough. And if I go make money, I can't do the service work as much. So I will have said in the beginning, what do I have to trade? I have to trade that service work or some of it at least if I'm going to go now hustle 60 to 80 hours a, a week, building a new thing in order to make money. So I've been, you know, noodling on
0: that I'm like, well, well I could build something just to, you know, provide people jobs and training I'm like, oh yeah. So That's yeah. a good question. What would it take to trade sixty to eighty hours of peace for when you don't need money? <laughs> I can't figure it out. Yeah, I just don't know. Valid. Well, usually I like to conclude the show with what sort of future outlook do you have for yourself for your interests? But I think you're kind of touching on it. But I, and, I, and I don't want to push you for it. You know, if um, if if there's no if where you're at is just a still path without having to think about the future and being an, an encumbered by it, then there's no need to to discuss further. But if you feel like dropping some seeds or thoughts about seeds that you may go in or that you may enjoy exploring, then I'd love to hear it.
1: Yeah, what I will share, instead of seed dropping, I'll do crumb dropping. I think MLK said said, we are all just beggars leaving crumbs for others to where we found a loaf of bread, right? So when we find a loaf of bread, we want other people to know where we found it. And so what I'm seeing in this moment is this real shift towards all things that are essential. And I'm talking about from a business standpoint mostly, uh, but a societal standpoint, and we've heard this word essential business or this phrase essential business coming up during COVID. And I can't imagine in the future, a world that is, you know, this world is it's on fire. Um, it's it's crumbling in so many different ways that we won't continue to need to work on things that are essential, and that which is not essential, it's just a matter of time before it goes away. Because if it's not essential, man, it just doesn't need to be there. So I would just suggest for any entrepreneurs listening, like really take a look at what you're doing, and if it's not essential, I don't know, I don't know how sustainable it's going to be. And if it is essential, God bless you. Uh, the world needs what you're doing and keep pushing.
0: Perfect. Okay. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add or talk about? I think that's good. Okay. Well, Peter, I think it's I think that's good too. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being yeah. on the show.
1: Yeah, man, it's really my pleasure.